Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multigenerational, and multilayered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Stanley about her book, Widen the Window training your brain and body to thrive during stress and recover from trauma. Welcome. Uh, can I call you Liz? Cause we go back. We um, absolutely call me Liz. It's so uh, great to be here. Well, we went to Yale together and then we got to know each other uh, more during senior year. So I'm going to call you Liz and she can call me Makunda just cause that's really how we know each other without being doctors first. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I've told you guys a little bit that we went to school together and I can tell you from um, looking uh, from kind of the outside, um, I was just always impressed with Liz. Um, I knew that she uh, worked through Yale uh, doing um, junior ROTC. I knew that she was just, uh, just the person that I would think or the way I would describe her is just as just being strong-willed, dedicated, and persistent, and um, a really good sense of humor also. But tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your journey since I've, uh, since we were classmates. Absolutely. So um, I come from, as you know, a long military family history. I'm the ninth generation in my family to serve in the U.S. Army. Uh, followed by one of my sisters, and I moved around a lot growing up, and like many of us, um, experienced a fair amount of childhood trauma, and was really good at hiding it and pushing it aside for, you know, hyper-achieving, which is what got me to Yale uh, when we met each other, and I, I did do an ROTC scholarship at at school so that I then served in the Army as an intelligence officer, and I was overseas in Korea and Germany, I did two deployments in the Balkans. And my military service was really stressful as well, the intensity of the training and the two deployments. And while I was in Bosnia, I even had a near-death experience. Um, and as with earlier life stress, spent all of that time just sort of shoving it under to keep pushing and going. And by the time I got to graduate school, um, I, my body was just sort of finally had enough and it started telling me no in lots of different ways. Um, I had lots of chronic physical illnesses, respiratory illnesses, um, bad insomnia, and I developed depression and PTSD. And this book is kind of an outgrowth of the, the journey that I've been on in the course of having those experiences and then my journey through recovery. Um, learning a number of different techniques, trying a lot of different therapies, eventually doing some of my own clinical training in body-based trauma therapy called somatic experiencing. And all of it came together in a resilience training program that I created. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it later on. Um, but I've spent a decade um, teaching these skills, 15 years teaching these skills in different high-stress settings, especially among combat troops that were preparing to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. And Widen the Window is kind of the culmination of all of the neuroscience and stress research that we did with this resilience training program, my own stories, the stories of the men and women I trained, and um, some of the science behind all of this um, there's really nothing in this book that I haven't really experienced in my own mind and body first. 
and I've observed it in so many other minds and bodies too. So let me read a passage um, uh, from the book. Where did all this stress and trauma go? Predominantly into my body where I could compartmentalize, ignore, deny, and override the cumulative effects of so many physical and psychic assaults and betrayals. Instead, I threw myself into striving and achieving, such as being student body president and valedictorian of my fourth high school, earning degrees from Yale, Harvard, and MIT, and attaining tenure at Georgetown in one of the nation's most prestigious programs for my field. Thus, as our society usually understands it, I was resilient, capable of tolerating and functioning through an immense amount of stress. In the midst of this compulsive striving, however, I couldn't slow down enough to see what was actually going on, that my choices were inexorably undermining my resilience. Suck it up and drive on can facilitate tremendous achievement and success until it doesn't anymore. So what happened when your body rebelled, when the cumulative experience of stress and trauma just became too much? It got to the point where I had this inner war, where my body had been trying to give me messages in a more subtle way that I was both consciously and unconsciously ignoring and papering over. And like many people at that point, I started really doubling down on my old way of coping, you know, pushing through even harder. I became really rigid. Um, and I was living this weird double life where on the outside, I was barely holding it together. Um, but at home, I was just a mess and it was getting harder and harder and harder to cope. I was married at the time. Um, it was probably, you know, this all exacerbated it and our, our marriage ended. Um, and ultimately, uh, I developed, <laughs> I lost my eyesight. I had three different episodes where I lost my eyesight. I remember that, that <laughs> sort of went through our chain of friends. And I remember you getting worked up for um, multiple sclerosis. And I yes. Every, and, they and ever, I must say that even back then, I had an inkling that it could be stress, but I didn't think, I would think most people would have thought, oh, you're crazy. Like, how could stress cause blindness? Absolutely. And when, when the, all of the brain scans for MS came up clear, I didn't have any of the, the um, nodules the, yeah. in, in the brain that go with that. Then, then the doctors, the neurologists, the um, neuro-ophthalmologists, they're all like, well, well, this must, you know, this must all be crazy. You're making it up. But I wasn't making it up. It, it took another 12 more years before we finally figured out what was going on. I had been bit by a tick when I was in the army and had gone to the military health clinic and said, hey, I see the little, the little um, bullseye here. I think this might be Lyme disease. And at that point, no one really knew much about Lyme, certainly not in the army, and they wouldn't give me antibiotics. Mm. I had, I'd been carrying a Lyme disease infection. And now in retrospect, they think that it was probably the Lyme that was attacking my optic nerves um, as what was causing it. But we didn't know at that point. And as a new professor, um, not having eyesight, going through a divorce, it was a real choice point moment um, and an opportunity to really kind of have the frying pan upside my head. I mean, it was, it was a strong metaphor. I didn't want to see what was in my life. Um, mm. I had to do that. And so it, it sent me on, on quite uh, a journey of self-discovery and, and healing and recovery. Um, I had an opportunity with my medical leave of absence from, from teaching to sit my first long three-month silent retreat. And then I spent some time a few years later when my eyesight was back um, in Burma. I spent some time working intensively um, training in a monastery in Burma. And, um, and then I got a piece of that information through, through also through our college. <laughs> Liz is going to become a Buddhist monk. And I was like, and you won't be able to reach her. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> our listeners should know that, yeah, there's definitely been some gaps in, in our time. And I, uh, 
get little snippets every now and again from uh, different uh, uh, friends, mutual friends. But yes, I remember that portion also that that were, uh, what they were telling me is that you were a Buddhist monk. So in those times that you basically um, had to internalize, how did it feel when the medical professions couldn't pinpoint something and so basically made you feel like it was all in your head? It was really traumatic. Um, and I, I mean that in the definition of the word that with when, when our survival brain perceives us as helpless and powerless and lacking control, that's when we experience trauma. And it was really traumatic because they, you know, kind of wrote me off. And um, that, on the one hand, it was very devastating. On the other hand, it was this amazing opportunity because it's what finally sent me to to really take control and pay attention and own my choices around my my body. I mean, I had been neglecting it for so many decades and it was time for me to take responsibility for that. And I got very proactive and I started experimenting. I tried a whole lot of non-traditional techniques um, that are still even now not fully integrated into Western medicine. And they, they were really, really helpful. And it was, it was great to sort of take my power back, but it wasn't, it didn't feel good initially. In retrospect now, I, I think back to two doctors in particular, the ones that had made me feel the worst. And I recognized that it was probably very hard for them to be I was going to tell you that you want answers and almost as equally bad, we want to give you answers. Yes. And it's not as, and, and that's just the way we're trained. That's yes. we're supposed to be healers and we're supposed to know the answers. And um, it's discomforting to us when we can't make things better. And um, in in a bigger picture, obviously, you know, when you, when you pull yourself out of the situation, you have to understand that, well, well, of course you can't make a hundred percent of the people better, but I mean, we wouldn't speak to be doctors if that wasn't our goal was to be at a hundred, but I know it's frustrating for patients and, and I try not to go down that, that road, but I do some, you know, I, I can, I've been in your clinician's shoes as far yes. as on it. I can't find an answer. Maybe she's faking it. Maybe this is, you know, <laughs> all in her head. Maybe there's some other, um, some other thing going on that we can't pinpoint because we've done the CAT scans. We've looked at her labs. We've done extensive physical exams and still nothing. Yes, I, I realize in retrospect, that's a lot of what must have been going on. Um, and I think that especially for the, one of the neurologists, I think this person took it super personally, like it, it was um, threatening to this doctor's identity that, that they couldn't have an answer for me. And that I think made them maybe a little more defensive than they even wanted to be. Um, but I recognize now in retrospect, you know, it was a, just a really, Lyme wasn't on anyone's radar. No one thought to test for that at all. It, and the only reason I got tested so many years later was I got bit by a spider and my um, arm swelled up huge. And after that, I started having some kind of mild versions of the symptoms I had had you know, with the double vision and blurry vision, I, I lose my vision again, but it started coming back again. And the doctor that I was working with at that point, who is a, a very Lyme focused doctor said, Hey, you know, ticks and arachnids, they're, they, they're similar. Like maybe you can't process neurotoxins from them. And, and they did the genetic testing and then they could do the Lyme testing. So it was kind of a backdoor way that we found out so many years later. So I don't, I don't in any way um, fault the doctors. I know that it was really hard for them to not know. It was just a challenging time for all of us. Definitely, definitely. So you uh, mentioned the survival brain. Tell us about, in your book, you spend a lot of time talking about the thinking and the survival brain. Um, 
define that for our listeners and then tell us why those uh, two, you know, two sides of the same coin are at odds in our culture. Yes. So um, there's a a way of understanding the brain. Daniel Kahneman, in his very popular book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, talks about kind of this dual processing way of, of thinking. And I use some of the more, the newer neuroscience research to kind of build on that. The thinking brain is the evolutionarily newest parts of our brain, um, what he would call thinking slow, and it's in the neocortex. And this is the part of the brain that controls reasoning and planning and um, willpower and explicit decision-making. And we know that the thinking brain is active when we can hear that kind of inner commentary of thinking and narrating that, that is going on in our heads Um, Many of us identify with our thinking brain as the brain because that's the part that we're using to do decision making and planning. And it's also the part we're hearing all the time. But the reason I make the distinction in the book is that this brain is not responsible for stress and trauma or recovery. And so I wanted to really highlight that for readers The survival brain is all of the evolutionarily older parts of the brain, the the limbic system, which is sometimes called the mammalian brain. It's the part that controls emotions and implicit memory. And then the the parts down at the base of of our head, the brain stem and the cerebellum. And all of these parts of the brain together do what Daniel Kahneman calls thinking fast. So it's very automatic. It's unconscious. And it's, it, it was geared evolutionarily to help us be able to rapidly appraise threat and safety and then to turn on all of the different automatic functions that help us to keep ourselves safe um, from challenge or, or threat. So it's what controls all the physical sensations in our body and our emotions. It's what controls stress arousal. Um, whether we turn stress on, and also, really importantly, whether we turn stress off. Um, And because these two parts of the brain have different systems of memory, they're differently affected by stress. You know, when we have chronic stress or trauma, our thinking brain functions can get very degraded. It's one of the reasons why many of us have very fragmented or inconsistent memories of of traumatic events because our thinking brain was mostly offline during that time. But the survival brain's always on. And the more stress arousal we're experiencing, the more the survival brain is learning and remembering and then generalizing from that for the way that we're moving through the world. Um, And I wanted to highlight this because most of our culture identifies with the thinking brain It um, focuses on thinking brain dominant techniques. Um, Even most of our therapies in our culture are still thinking brain dominant, like cognitive behavioral therapy or positive psychology techniques or, you know, looking for the positive in something or feeling grateful. All of those things are done by the thinking brain. It's Mm. hard to access those tools when we're stressed. And those tools are going to be incomplete because thinking brain doesn't turn stress off. Only the survival brain can turn stress off. Um, And so when these two parts of the brain end up in an adversarial relationship, which often happens when we've had chronic stress or we've experienced trauma, then we start doing some of these patterns that can be really unskillful over the long term. In my case, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, I fell into the direction of thinking brain override with compartmentalization and and suppressing my emotions, suppressing my pain, overriding my body's needs. Um, It's very, very common in our culture to do thinking brain override um, with our value on grit and powering through. And obviously, we need to be able to do that in extreme events, but it's not helpful as a chronic habit. The other flip side of that, that adversarial relationship, is when we end up with survival brain hijacking. And that's when 
our emotions and our pain are often unconsciously driving our decisions. That's when we make reactive and impulsive choices. And that's also when we self-medicate our distress. Um, Food, stress eating, you know, caffeine, tobacco, other substances, addictive behavior, adrenaline seeking behavior, violent or self-harming behavior, all of those things. And what's most important about all of these coping habits, whether it's thinking brain override or survival brain hijacking, none of them are helping us recover and heal. They might help us feel a little more soothed in the moment, but they're not actually helping our minds and bodies to come back to their baseline so that we have the most capacity for whatever's coming next. Well, and I'm I'm, I'm sure that um, what you're alluding, well, Part of what you've been doing is developing a resilience training program that you first pioneered within the military, but since then um, has been used uh, with um, executives, doctors, lawyers, people in high stress situations. Uh, the mindfulness-based mind fitness training, or MMFT. Um, tell us about how you went about developing um, the the mind fitness training and why you thought it was necessary? Well, it's interesting when I, um, before I lost my eyesight, when I was already starting to seek treatment for my depression and PTSD, um, I had some friends who recommended I start meditating and they, you know, taught me the basics of an awareness of breathing practice. And, you know, that's mindfulness has kind of taken off in our society. Um, it's, it's become very popularized in the last decade or so. But I was ahead of that curve when I was learning this back, you know, 20 years ago. And I was struck by, you know, I'd sit down to, to practice and pay attention to my breathing. And sometimes it was fine, but many times I would find myself freaking out. Like I would send myself into panic attacks and have really bad anxiety. And then after that, I would have this like fresh wave of claustrophobia and insomnia and bad flashbacks and um, nausea that wouldn't last for days. And I would feel, you know, completely unable to function in the world. I'd cancel things and stay home. And I thought, how can this how can this thing that's supposed to make everybody feel calm be, you know, what am I doing wrong was my first question. And then my second question was, oh, this must just be it's something wrong with me. I, I, I can't do this thing. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of research, published empirical research, looking at different mindfulness-based interventions. The most common one that's in many hospitals is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And, you know, I... I investigated a little further. I did some teacher training in it, and I realized, you know, this is not being taught in ways that really work with a mind and body that have experienced a lot of stress or a lot of trauma without recovery. And so that's when I went and did some clinical training in the body-based trauma therapies and also spent several years as a client helping to re-regulate my own survival brain and, and nervous system. And I realized I wanted to put together a training that could offer these techniques to help people learn how to help their survival brains feel safe and do that recovery. Because it's innate to all of us, we can do it. But to do it in a way that wasn't going to create this exacerbation of symptoms like I had experienced. The first pilot study we did with Marines in 2007, I had not yet sort of put together the sequence of exercises in the way that it is now. And many of my Marines, after five minutes of practice or 10 minutes of practice, they were having the same effects that I had been having. And that helped me realize that we just need to be careful. If if we're learning something like this, we need to work with the survival brain in a way that's sort of gradual and slow so that the survival brain really feels safe and it can turn on recovery in a way that that can be supportive and, and lasting. So that's what I tried to do. And then, you know, that's what I've done. We've, we've spent a decade testing it. And the research has shown a lot of different um, real co- resilience building effects. And we've published it in top science journals 
All that research is on my website if any of your listeners want to see it, but better cognitive performance during stress, um, better immune functioning, um, better sleep outcomes, sleeping longer and using fewer sleep aids, um, faster arousal during combat drills, and then a faster and more complete recovery from that arousal afterwards, and shifts in the way that the brain um, shifts in the way that the brain fires um, in regions of the brain responsible for pain regulation and emotion regulation and impulse control um, so that there's just better, better regulation of, of stress and emotions. And all of this is something we can do for ourselves. Um, the MFIT program is usually taught over eight weeks. Um, it's 20 hours of training but we sometimes teach short, shorter versions of that. And the most important thing is that people are practicing the exercises on a regular basis because that's what leads to the retraining of the brain and the nervous system. So um, I, I thought it was really interesting that you said you couldn't practice the mindfulness until you had healed. And so actually trying to practice mindfulness uh, in some ways exacerbated, made you have some thematic type complaints of nausea or irritableness. Um, I think that's, that's certainly um, a new finding, don't you think? Yes. Um, I feel like in the last five years, there's just starting to be, people are starting to catch up with what I figured out in my, my body many years ago, which is that mindfulness really does need to be taught in a trauma-sensitive or at least a trauma-informed manner. And there's starting to be some, some movement in that direction um, because it's not the way that the mass media kind of portrays it. It's been often portrayed in our culture as this new silver bullet that is, you know, make us all feel blissed out. And I, if your listeners are, you know, trying to use these practices and there's so many apps out there now to do it, and they're finding that it's not working. I want them to all understand that they're not alone, that that is a very, very, very normal and common response. Mm -hmm. It's to do with, you know, each of us have to work with whatever our conditioning is up to this point. And for many of us, our brains just have not yet had the chance to learn how to do this process in a way that's not going to make it worse. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important that uh, everyone understands that you have to, it, this is a journey. This has been a journey that you've been on for more than 20 years now of healing. And um, it certainly would be easier to uh, go and get a prescription of Prozac, but uh, a prescription of Prozac is not going to create the fundamental changes or create real wellness um, until you can deal with um, what the the background stress and trauma that you may have in, going on in your life. Which you know, I know that you focus uh, or that the MFIT has been particularly tested in um, in executives and kind of high powered people in the military, but. I know that you understand that um, our children, um, even from the wealthiest backgrounds, are going through a decent amount of stress. Um, and then uh, children, uh, worst case scenario, that grow up with a lot of violence in their neighborhood. I'm thinking of urban settings like Chicago and L.A. Uh, those kids experience, uh, you know, true trauma and yes. PTSD. And so how accessible would your training be for our younger people? I have um, taught a couple groups of teens um, over the years, and they have really enjoyed the training and benefited from it. Um, and I regularly teach, you know, students on, on campus um, and some of them are in their teens and really benefit from it too. I think that um, in some ways, it's interesting when you look at, at the, the data, this, this Generation Z has 
much higher rates of depression and anxiety and suicidality um, than and anxiety disorders um, than you know the previous generations. And you know each generation has had more than the, the previous generations than that. It's like been a building thing in our culture. I think for the kids today, it's especially hard because they're growing up and their brains and bodies have been wired with much more interaction with technology that mm-hmm. has effects, uh, the multitasking that comes from that and, and what that does to um, thinking brain functions um, and how it makes survival brains hypersensitive. Um, and so they tend to turn on a lot more stress with that. And then, as you said, so much of our wiring happens in, you didn't say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. So much of our initial wiring that sets our trajectory to either be resilient or less resilient over the course of our life, it starts in the last trimester in the womb and it continues, especially until we're about 16. And so if we're living in environments where our parents are just stressed and coping with their own loss and and have already narrowed their own window of tolerance to stress, that gets conveyed to their children in the way the children's brains and bodies get wired. And then if you throw on adversity, like the kinds of events that you were talking about growing up in violent homes or experiencing violence in the community or um, experiencing incarcerated parents or you know addictions or mental mm-hmm. issues in the family, all of these things have real impact on the way that that child's brain and immune system and um, other hormone systems, their, their autonomic nervous system, all of these things get wired in ways that make them much more hypersensitive to anxiety, to aggression. They, they don't have as much capacity to, to downregulate negative emotions and stress. And then that, that's the brain and body that they're, they're carrying it then into adulthood. I spend several chapters in the book talking about early childhood and share some of my own stories too, because, you know, for me, I had always thought of that as that was in the past and it wasn't affecting right now. Like I had completely written it off as not relevant. And so many of the men and women I've trained, I see that same pattern in them. We just tend to think that that, that's over and it's not having an effect today now that we're adults, but it does. if does. If we haven't done the work to recover from that, it is still affecting us today. And it's affecting then the capacity that we bring to raising our children and helping our children to, you know, develop resilience too. So um, let me just play devil's advocate because uh, both of us are are products of this society and, um, you know, uh, with um, both, you know, both of us, uh, kind of uh, set to ach- be high achievers as far as going to Yale and for me going to Harvard for you, um, Yale and MIT and and Harvard. And so just to play devil's advocate is, you know, one person could say, well, without the adversity that you faced in your life, perhaps you wouldn't have the grit and determination that resulted in your um, outward success and and success by, you know, by pretty much all standards that we use to uh, critique success. Those are the same people that would say that there can be no Michael Jackson without Joe Jackson, who um, Mm -hmm. is his father and had been um, um, had been, um, you know, alleged to have committed um, atrocious emotional and physical abuse. Uh, I had read Andre Agassi's um, autobiography. He talked about the, um, he became great in the field of tennis, but at for a large part of his life, he hated tennis and um, he had a, a, a very rocky relationship with his father, but it was his father who pushed tennis. He's, he remembers um, literally in the crib being less than a year and his father making a makeshift type of tennis racket and a, a playmobile that had a tennis ball on it that he would hit um, even at one. And, 
Um, so can you have greatness without suffering, without adversity? And how? That's a fascinating question, Makunda. Um, I do think that we grow and learn best through challenge. And I do think that there is this very positive upside that can happen from adversity. Um, it's, it's a place where we can really test our mettle. But I hesitate to say that only great people have, have had to overcome adversity. I, I, I know of people who have had less um, adversity in their lives and they still are accomplishing amazing things. And mm-hmm. the, I also know people who have had a lot of adversity, like I have, and they haven't accomplished great things. And that's often because of other structural aspects in their lives, um, socioeconomic aspects or, um, uh, you know, just lack of, of opportunity, lack of, um, lack of good guidance, lack of um, support, you know, psychic and, and monetary and material. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I'd, I'd hate to say that it's, it's a sort of a, it maps on adversity. You need adversity for greatness. I would say that many of us in our culture have experienced a lot of adversity and I think it's way more common than it's generally accepted or known. And I think too, that we often get into mm, our thinking brains get into this very sometimes kind of toxic comparison of looking at other people who've had adversity and saying, well, I haven't experienced that. And so I should be fine or I shouldn't be having issues. And, and that kind of dismissing and devaluing of, of our own adversity, of our own stress is actually really counterproductive. And it's really hard for the survival brain. It makes that adversarial relationship um, between the survival brain and thinking brain even, even harder. Um, but there is no way to really grow even our resilience without experiencing something that takes us out of our comfort zone and then also having an opportunity to recover and adapt and learn from it. And so, yes, any adversity is going to help us, um, but I don't think you have to have adversity to be great. But you can also have adversity and not experience trauma from it and perhaps be stressed in the moment, but be able to recover, right? Because yes, have the adversity of, uh, for example, you give a a example of, I think the person's name you used in the book was Tanya, that she was uh, overlooked for a promotion. That's adversity. And that could be stressful, but in you could use that um, challenge to be better, to, to be stronger, to be, to be like, you know, the candidate of the, of choice for the next go around. Yes. But in Tanya's case, she, you know, lost this promotion to a younger male colleague. Mm-hmm. And that was very triggering for her survival brain because she felt unconsciously. And then as we talked about it, she became conscious of it. She felt extremely powerless um, because of gender dynamics in in her workplace, a very male-dominated workplace in the national security community. And that was then traumatic for her survival brain. And she wasn't really aware that her survival brain had, had experienced this event as traumatic. And many of us would not, you know, our our conventional understanding wouldn't think of losing out on a promotion as being trauma. That isn't the way we normally talk about trauma, but it it was actually traumatic for her. She did double down. I mean, after Mm -hmm. she understood that, she did double down and she ended up getting another promotion later. Um, So it was adversity that helped her be great, but it also... It also was traumatic and it was traumatic during that time. So the thing that I really like about the book also is that 
on one end, it can be very personal, but you widen it to the entire society because um, as we were speaking uh, before we started recording, we were saying basically that the United States in all its wealth and, you know, superpowerness is excessively unhealthy from uh, the obesity to the hypertension to um, alcoholism and just other addictions. We are a nation of, of unhealthy people that are dysregulated and not, um, not practicing the mindfulness. Um, but I like the fact that even within Tanya's situation, you talk about some of these big picture things that we're dealing with as society, the, um, racism and um, heterosexism and um, just uh, all of the uh, poverty and um, all of those things that do become stressors and traumatic. Um, and you spend some time in the final chapters talking about um, societal changes. And given that we're recording this in basically the uh, time of Corona, um, where uh, 90% at, at this point in April of America is in uh, stay-at-home mode and in a lockdown mode. Tell us about um, ways that we can be practicing healthier behaviors and um, dealing with the uh, stress and trauma of, of just living in America 2020. It's a great question, Makunda. The first thing I would say is um, that as extraordinary as it is for everybody to be in lockdown and have routines disrupted as much as they are, and for many people losing jobs and having complete financial uncertainty and insecurity right now, just having everything thrown up in the air, kids home, parents having to homeschool, there's just so much disruption there is one silver lining in all of that disruption from the perspective of neuroplasticity um, and you know, rewiring our brains and bodies. We have the most likelihood of having habit change be successful when we have new beginnings. New beginnings are a really important structural time for new habits. So everybody is now sort of thrown home and living together with their families and, you know, doing work remotely and all these other things. This is a really amazing choice point for instituting new habits that can help us build resilience. And, um, you know, our thinking brains and our survival brains are going to want to go about this process differently when our thinking brains don't have enough information to plan and predict and prevent things they don't want to happen, that's that, and that's very common in this period of uncertainty, it, it produces anxiety. And what that makes many of our thinking brains want to do is to spend all this time kind of what if, you know, catastrophizing, thinking and dreading and watching the news 24-7 and being on social media and watching the feeds 24-7, all of that is the way that the thinking brain is trying to get some sense of control. But all of that is also really activating for our survival brain. So the one first thing I would say, the most general comment is before we can really have our thinking brains make good effective plans and problem solve creatively, we first have to work with our survival brain. We first have to have our survival brain feel safe and grounded and stable. And there's a couple things that every listener could be doing right now. The first, perhaps most important one is getting enough sleep. Um, we do a lot of our recovery functions when we're getting sleep. And by getting enough sleep, I mean like eight to nine hours a night um, and disengaging from being really judicious about how much time you're going to be online, um, watching the news, reading the news, um, and being on, on social media. So really disengaging from that, limiting that, 
building time in for good sleep, building time in for physical movement and exercise, even when everyone's caught in their home and you might not have access to a gym or you might not have access to being outside, especially people in urban settings, social distancing outside is still really, really hard. But everybody can even get some exercise indoors. Um, my favorite trick for this right now is using high intensity interval training. There's some great apps that are free. Uh, they have free versions and, and premium versions, but the free versions give you know 10 to 15 minute workouts that raise our heart rate and build our strength. You don't need any equipment. My personal favorite one is 8FIT. It's a, the letter, the, the number eight and then F-I-T. Um, and so it's a great way to get some exercise. Um, really focusing on diet right now because um, for so many of us, imbalances in, the, in our gut, in the microbiome, it actually feeds chronic inflammation and it suppresses our immunity. Most of our immune functioning is in our gut. And so really eating healthy right now as much as possible is very important. Avoiding sugar, avoiding caffeine, uh, avoiding too much alcohol, um, and avoiding pain medications. Um, especially non-steroidal ones. Much of the data coming from China is showing that bad outcomes, you know, being hospitalized in the ICU and with ventilators were people who had been taking a lot of ibuprofen. We've been talking about things before. I forgot to mention that one to you. But so really limiting some of these pain medications and focusing on diet. And then the last one um, that I would suggest Two more, I guess. One more is social connections. Even though we're not physically together, um, except with our families, making time through Face FaceTime and and Google Hangout and Skype and, and Zoom to see friends and connect with them, connect with loved ones, and if you're caught in home with a group of people, also finding some time for yourself, um, for parents to share duties and, and have some alone time for their own recovery while the other co-parent is, is helping um, with the children is really helpful. Just so y'all know, I'm now um, in my closet doing this podcast because <laughs> it started getting loud. Um, in your book, and I didn't mean to cut you off if you had one more, but in your book, you, uh, you make a distinction about the connectedness, making time to at least talk with somebody once a day, um, whether it be in person or on the phone or by Skype. And you particularly say no email or text message. Why? Why, why am I not communicating um, and getting social connection through text messages? We are neurobiologically wired to connect and the kind of connection that our bodies and brains, our survival brains crave is an actual emotional and physical resonance. Um, and we can't do that if we don't have direct voice to voice contact or visual contact or even best of all, in-person contact. This is really important for our survival brains feeling supported and nurtured, and it helps us feel safe. It helps us um, to downregulate stress when we're with people that we care for and we know care for us. Um, and so uh, emails and texts don't cut it in terms of the, the way to maintain a relationship. And especially right now, while we're also socially distanced, it's especially important to be finding ways to not just connect to people through social media or to connect, you know, by text. And for the younger generations, many of their relationships are entirely done that way, but it's actually hard for the survival brain and the nervous system to get the downregulation they need when we're only doing it um, uh, through, t through email or text or social media. Um, the last thing I would say as something very concrete is that even when things around us are entirely out of our control, um, like they are for many of us right now, like they are right now, <laughs> always have a choice about where we're directing our attention. Um, for many of us, we're not even paying attention to where our attention is being directed. So our attention is being directed unconsciously. And often when that happens, it's, it's leading to 
you know, not the best outcomes. But we can learn to train our attention um, in ways that help to cue the body and the survival brain to feel safe. Um, and the best way to start that is to just start with a short exercise every day. And your listeners can go to my website, um, download a five-minute guided uh, exercise um, for training the survival brain to feel places of refuge. Um, it's called the contact points exercise. It's also in the book, but you can get a, a, a guided audio version of it. It's only five minutes. Doing that five, five minutes once a day at least is really helping the survival brain to trust the physical support of our surroundings. And that helps it turn on all of the parasympathetic nervous system recovery functions that help us to discharge our stress and, and turn stress off. So that would be the last thing I would, would offer. Um, because until our survival brains can feel safe and grounded, we're never going to be able to make the best decisions. Our thinking brain is, is going to be biased. It's going to be um, degraded and this is a time when we really need to be able to make good decisions and access choice. And so helping our survival brains feel safe in all these different habits that I've mentioned is one very concrete thing people can be doing right now. It's been so awesome talking with you, Liz, and catching up. Um, I hope that we're not going to um, have years go by um, like it's been, but I want to encourage the listeners to go out and purchase the book, Widen the Window, where, which will be available wherever you get your books, whether it's Amazon or on any other online booksellers. And then, um, Liz, can you leave us with your website and then um, the... You, uh, listeners will be able to look at the show liner notes and we'll have more ways of um, contacting, but give us um, the the website so that they can go and learn more about um, your training and about the uh, five minute um, mindfulness uh, exercise. Absolutely. My website is elizabeth-stanley.com and you can get the contact points exercise there. I recently finished filming for an online version of MFIT that is going to be available to anyone anywhere in the world. We're in post-production right now um, for that, but it will be available starting in October. And you can get details about, you know, when that's going to be available on the website too. Thank you so much. And I'm wishing you the best and continued success and continued health. Thank you, Makunda. It was really lovely to catch up, and I hope that we will talk again very soon. It was wonderful to spend some time together this afternoon, and I hope that you and your family and your community stay safe and healthy. This is a challenging time for us all. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes. Spotify, and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.